I found out this past week that I get to preach the rest of the year, so I drew the long straw and, and earned that privilege. Pastor Tom sitting over here is doing a lot better. Look forward to hearing the word from him after the first of the year. We understand that Danny's doing better as well. We just love these two brothers very much. Roger and I are in pretty good health, so uh, we'll carry the load till they get back full time. How's that? Uh, the main reason I draw attention to that is because uh, getting to preach the last three Sundays of the year affords me uh, some time to do an Advent series. And I would like to preach three sermons, the 11th, 18th, and the 25th, a series simply titled, Jesus is God, that's who he is. What I've done is taken three sentences out of the Bible that express the truth about the deity of Jesus Christ informed them into three different sermons. The first is titled, Jesus, Who is God? and comes from the last part of Romans chapter 9, verse 5, where we read, Messiah or Christ, who is God over all forever praised. The second sermon is titled, Christ, Who is Our Savior? It comes from Matthew chapter 1. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the last meditation will be titled, Christ, who is our Lord, taken from Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. Today in the town of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The necessary truth before his Saviorhood and divine Lordship can be implemented is that we must believe that Jesus himself is God. That last phrase in verse 5 of Romans 9, Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Interestingly, I think one place that we can begin that will be useful to us is not with the Advent narratives, but with one of the resurrection narratives. It is found at the end of John chapter 20, where Jesus is risen from the dead, and immediately he appears to his disciples, two are absent. Judas is no longer there, for he is no longer alive. And for some reason known only to the Lord himself, Thomas was not there either. And Jesus showed himself alive to his disciples with many convincing proofs, and how they did rejoice in the aliveness of their Lord. When he left, they went and found Thomas and began to exclaim to him, we have seen the crucified Christ. He is risen and he is alive. But Thomas could not get over the fact of what he had seen, the, the brutal scourging that Jesus had uh, experienced before the cross and the atrocities committed against Jesus while he was on the cross. And Thomas just could not get past it. So he says to his disciple friends, I will not believe unless I see him and am able to touch his wounds. Now, if you think about it for a moment, Thomas had spent three years with these men. They were seeking to live lives of truth like Jesus had taught them. He knew that these men were not liars, that they were not committing some kind of joke against him, telling him that Jesus was alive when they knew he was still dead. None of that. They had not lost their senses. These were credible witnesses. 
At the same time, they just could not get past, he just could not get past the fact that his Savior was dead. Well, one whole week later, on the second Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, while they were in the upper room in Jerusalem, Thomas was there, and Jesus appeared before his disciples alive again. Standing there in front of Thomas, he said to him, stop doubting and believe. And then he invited Thomas to touch his wounds, and there's no indication in the passage whatsoever that Thomas actually needed to touch the wounds of Jesus. It simply says that he believed. At that moment, Thomas confessed one of the most incredible, powerful, creedal affirmations concerning the deity of Christ that has ever been spoken. He looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. You are my Lord in a very personal way and I am to live my life submitted to your divine and holy authority. And the reason I must do that is because you are God and in a very personal way, you are my God. What an incredible affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. There is another affirmation of the deity of Christ that is equally powerful. It is when Paul says in Romans 9 verse 5, Messiah, who is Christ over all, forever praised. It's important for us to understand what we mean by the word or the title Christ and the title Messiah. Actually, those are the same words, Christ, Messiah, the same words, but in two different languages. The word or the title Christ or Messiah means one who has been anointed by God to perform a special task. And the special task of the Messiah was to come into our world and redeem us from sin and rule over us in righteousness. In other words, he was to be both our savior and the one who is sovereign over us. And what we are told in this verse is that Christ, Messiah, the one who's been anointed by God to save us from our sin and to rule over us in righteousness, he is God over all, forever praised, and he adds the word, amen. Now that simple statement that's really only about a half sentence uh, uh, embraces three incredible truths. First, Christ is God. Secondly, Christ is overall, meaning he's supreme. And third, Christ is worthy of worship. Christ is God, so we should love him. Christ is supreme overall, so we should obey him. Christ is worthy of praise, so we should worship him. And that's kind of the flow of our sermon for this morning. Let's begin with the first. Christ is God. That's what Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God. It's what Paul affirms. He is God who is overall and worthy of our worship. These are explicit statements about the divine nature of Christ. And what is crucial for us to understand is that with great frequency throughout the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, the deity of the Messiah, the Christ, is explicitly confirmed. To help us see this, I would like to give us a whole list of biblical evidences for the divine nature of the Son of God. 
I have deliberately chosen to use very familiar scriptural passages. Passages I know you have likely read in your own Bible reading, and I know that you have certainly heard them on numerous occasions from this pulpit. But like the Apostle Peter, it's no trouble for me to remind you of what you have heard in the hopes of really driving home this truth that Jesus Christ really is God. Perhaps we should pray and ask God the Father to please cause the truth about the deity of Jesus Christ to become a burning reality in our souls. So let me give you some of this evidence. First of all, Jesus is called God. We see that in the very opening verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and apart from Him nothing has been made. If Jesus were in the beginning, it would mean He would have to exist before the beginning, referring to the eternal preexistence of God the Son. Then we're told he was with God, with him in eternal fellowship within the Holy Trinity, and he was and he is God himself, God the Son. And to underscore that he really is stressing the divine nature of Jesus, he tells us that he was the one that created the world. All things were made by him. He was the one who spoke creation into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, and he is the one who sustains it by his divine omnipotence. So Jesus is God, it says so clearly. Then there's a reference in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul the apostle is talking to the Ephesian elders here, and what he says about who purchased the church with his blood is astonishing. Listen very closely to the verse. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now we all know, if we understand the gospel, that our forgiveness, the gospel, and the church itself was purchased by the blood of Christ. The question is, what is he called here? Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, last Sunday, I was preaching uh, at Northridge Alliance Church over in Raleigh. Their new pastor is being installed today. And I was asked to do the last sermon there and a communion sermon at that. Well, in the middle of my sermon, I tried to use what little bit of a preaching voice I have to emphasize the reality of it. And I asked the question, who really was the Jesus on the cross? And I said with as much strength as I could, it was God on the cross. God was dying on the cross. And I quoted, amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, just die for me. Now, that's a well-taught congregation. They know that, but I was surprised that there were some there who were surprised, who even said, that never occurred to me. Beloved, we must never forget this thing, that the one who dies on the center cross, the one who is shouldering the mass of humanity's sin, this one is very God of very God, the Lord Jesus Christ. God purchased the church with his own 
blood. A second piece of evidence is that Jesus claimed to be the God of the burning bush. It's interesting, over in John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus is in one of his intense debates with some religious leaders. And he is trying to prove to them that he's more than a Jewish rabbi. That he actually is God come into our world. And so Jesus says there in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. The statement sounds simple enough. The last two words, I am, two words, three letters. Just that little bit of language can't mean a whole lot. You want to bet? You see, that I am traces back to the story of the burning bush in Exodus. You remember that story. Moses is on the backside of of the Midianite desert. He's watching his father-in-law's sheep. When suddenly he sees at a short difference away a bush, a common wilderness bush, it's a flame. But interestingly, the branches themselves are not being consumed by the fire. Moses draws near and he hears a voice speak to him from the bush saying, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now it's not holy because the dirt's unique, it's holy because the presence of God was visiting that place visibly in those moments. You see, it was God, the Lord, speaking from the bush. And he's there to call Moses into service. Uh, It is Moses he's choosing to go down to Egypt and lead his captive people, his enslaved people, Israel, out of Egyptian slavery into the promised land, the land of Cana. You remember the story? Moses doesn't want to do it. And so he begins to list a series of excuses why someone else would be better for the task. And they, and one of his excuses is this, you haven't spoken to Israel in so very long, they may not know you. What if they ask saying, what is God's name? And God replied, I am who I am, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if you're interested in the languages, you've probably heard this. When he said, I am who I am, or I am, it's the title Jehovah, or uh, it's the, the title Yahweh. Just again, two different languages. Interestingly, in the Old Testament that you read in English, It's spelt Lord with all capital letters. That's Yahweh. That's I am. What's crucial about that is it's a title that means that the Lord is the eternal and unchanging Lord of covenant love and faithfulness. He He has always existed in his eternal being. He can never change in his essential being. And he has entered a covenant of love and faithfulness to his people. That's the story. And Jesus says before Abraham, not even before Moses, but even further back before Abraham, was even born before the first patriarch ever received a covenant from God. I am. And the religious leaders didn't say, oh, okay, thanks for answering. No, no, they they reached down to pick up stones to stone Jesus because to call himself God the Lord is akin to the sin of blasphemy. You see what Jesus is saying, before Abraham was born, I am. He's saying, I'm the God of the burning bush. I'm the pre-existent, eternal, unchanging God who loves you and will always be faithful to you. I am that God. 
Another piece of evidence is that Jesus is the holy, holy, holy Lord seen by Isaiah. Now you had best know this. We have talked about it so very many times. You remember the story. Isaiah goes into the inner sanctum in Jerusalem and he is transported into the inner sanctum of heaven. And there he sees high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple, meaning there's no room for a rival deity. And the angels, the seraphs are hymning him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's a beautiful scene. It's a quite humbling scene. And the Lord is there receiving worship. What's interesting about that is if you move over to the Gospel of John again, the 12th chapter in the 41st verse, just after he's quoted from Isaiah 6, be astonished with what you read in that verse. It reads, Isaiah said this, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. In other words, when Isaiah looked upon him, who is hymned holy, holy, holy. He is looking upon the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ, who is eternally worthy of the worship of angels and his people himself. He is God. A fourth piece of evidence. Jesus forgives sins and receives worship because he is God. Only God has the authority to forgive the mass of all human sin. There's a story at the beginning of his ministry where Jesus is inside a crowded house. The, the place is jam-packed. And he's there teaching and some men bring a crippled friend of theirs to Jesus because they've heard Jesus can heal. Well, there's no way to get into the crowded house. And so they climb on the thatched roof, begin to dig their way through and lower the man in front of Jesus. Well, they brought him there for Jesus to heal. Jesus looks into the face of this man and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders there begin to question, who does he think he is? No one has authority to forgive sins except God alone. And Jesus knows their thoughts. And so he says to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk? Well, you know the answer, don't you? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And the reason is because there is no physical verification. Then Jesus said, I say unto you to show you that I have the power to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. And the man got up and he walked out with joy. You see, the physical miracle proved the truth of his real identity. That he is the God who is more than enough. That he's the God that can wipe your whole sins and clean your life like a fresh slate. He can remove your sins as far as from his presence, as far as the east is from the west, which going ever, ever those ways is an infinite distance. What about worship? In the ninth chapter of John, when Jesus heals the man born blind, it says that later he fell on his face and worshiped Jesus. Then you come to that story where Jesus heals 10 lepers. One returns to Jesus, falls at his feet, and expresses praise and gratitude to Jesus. And even after the resurrection, there are some of his disciples coming away, and they meet the resurrected Lord, and it says they fell down and worshiped him. At no point did Jesus, a, a teacher of truth, a lover of God the Father, at no point did he say, don't do that. I'm not worthy of worship. Only God is to be worshiped. Oh, no, no. You see, he accepted 
the worship. And the point I'm making is that forgiving sins and receiving worship are prerogatives that belong exclusively to God. And what does Jesus do? He forgives sins. And he receives worship because he is God. One last one, a thrilling one. Jesus is our great God and Savior who will someday return for us. You see, that's the great hope, the anticipation of every believing person that someday Jesus Christ will return. And we will all stand in full accountability before him who returns for us. But who is it that's returning? Carefully follow Titus chapter 2 in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who's coming? Our great God and Savior. What is his name? Jesus Christ. So you take all of these passages and you press them together. They add up to be overwhelming biblical evidence that Jesus is God. It is the way we are supposed to think about God, you see. That he is God come into our world. He is God come in human form without sinning as a human and without ceasing to be God. It's called the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. You remember that verse in the first chapter of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you skip down a few verses, and it says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is for the only begotten from the Father, full of truth and grace. That's who's walking around in our world. Emmanuel, God with us. With us to forgive us, to save us, to redeem us, and to deliver us unto himself. So Jesus is God. And because he is God, and God commands that we love him with the totality of our being, that love is certainly owed by us. Jesus. It brings us to the second truth. Christ is supreme overall. Doesn't the verse say that? Christ, Messiah, who is God overall. To be overall is to be exalted in majesty. It is to be supreme. It is to be sovereign. And that's who he is right now. You see, as the biblical story goes, Jesus comes into our world born a virgin. He lives a sinless life. He dies uh, a, a sin-absorbing sacrifice for us on the cross. He is raised in triumph. He shows himself alive with many convincing proof over a stretch of 40 days. He ascends back into heaven, exalted in majesty, seated at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. You might say it like this. He is hyper-exalted. I actually get that from the Bible. In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Behind that is the word uh, hyper, the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, acknowledge, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Highly exalted, hyper exalted, exalted to the supreme degree. 
No one is close to being on his level. He is in a class all by himself, reigning supreme at the highest pinnacle in the universe. It is impossible for us to fully grasp or comprehend how sovereign and supreme and exalted Jesus Christ is. He's the king, I say. We go around living our daily lives unconcerned about these sorts of things. It doesn't stop Jesus from being the king. He actually is. And because he is God, we're to love him. Because he is supreme, we are to submit to him. We're to obey him. What that means in practical terms is we dare not play. I hope we'll hear this. We dare not play fast and loose with his righteous and wise commands. We have no right to adopt uh, any convictions or practice any sort of lifestyle that is contrary to his truth. And most importantly of all, our behavior ought to be marked by obedience to Christ. For he is supreme over all, which means he is supreme over your life and he is supreme over my life. And so we are to love him and we're to obey him. And lastly, we are to worship him, you see. Because the verse says, Messiah, who is God over all, forever praise, to praise today and tomorrow and through the long stretches of eternity future. Now think about that for a moment. Think about who Jesus Christ is to each one of us. I've stated these in the sermon, but I'd like to bring them together in a list. Jesus Christ is the eternal word made flesh. The almighty creator of the universe, God, the eternal son who bled to purchase his church. The holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. The self-existent, unchanging Lord who redeems us and rules us. He is the one who has authority to forgive our sins. And he is our great God and Savior who will someday return for us. That's who he is. And it's among the reasons why we should worship him. But it says we'll worship him forever. Did you know, even at this moment, though we can't see into the heaven, he's being worshiped by the angels. In fact, we're told in Revelation 5, this is what they sing to him. In a loud voice, the angels were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's what the angels sing. Then we're told that those who occupy heaven, the redeemed of the ages, you and I will be there if we know Christ. We will mix our voices with the voices of the angels and we will sing this to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And if that is true, oh, how right it is for us today and every day to be among those who worship Jesus. You see, we should love him. He's God. We should submit to him. He is sovereign. And because he is worthy of praise, we should worship him. Now, there's one last word in that little sentence, half sentence, actually. It is the word amen. And it is exactly the right response. Christ, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. The word I mean, amen, means it is true. And it ought to be true in my life. To say amen is make it so in my thinking and living. 
And so Paul adds the amen here. So because Christ is God, we should love him. Because he is supreme, we should obey him. And because he is worthy of praise, we should worship him. Let's do it now. Let's praise our God, for he is worthy to receive it. Let us praise him the best we know how. And while we're doing so, let us love him more and obey him more until someday Jesus returns for us and we are held in full accountability before him. And we should be assured it is our hope that he will come. Shall we pray? Eternal, holy, heavenly Father, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name be all the glory. Thank you that there's no person in this world who exists or has ever existed who is beyond your love. And help us, Lord, to respond in simple faith to the sufficiency of who you are. Thank you that you love us sinners and help us sinners love you in return. To submit gladly to you and to worship you. Thank you that you are God over all, forever praised. Receive our praise just now. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And my love be with you in Christ Jesus. Amen.